is Arif Katra, and I'm the host of Voices Worth Listening To. This is a podcast dedicated to sharing stories about diversity, stories that I hope will make you think and reflect on how we experience each other's differences. My goal is to encourage change in our individual perspectives and in the ways in which we live and work together. When we think about diversity, equity, and inclusion, our mind often goes to race, religion, gender, sexual orientation, and those that are differently abled. But do these differences represent the full landscape of DEI? What topics do we still avoid? The one I'll broach today is weight. In today's episode of Voices Worth Listening To, I attempt to answer the following questions. Do overweight working professionals experience discrimination in the workplace? And what can organizational leaders do to put a check on this kind of discrimination? I'm fat. I thought of myself as fat ever since I was a little kid. But interestingly, this was not the result of my making some sort of rational comparison between my own size and the size of other kids. That ability to judge myself took years to develop. I thought of myself as fat because I was told I was fat. Sometimes by my family, referring to me as Bambulo or Jadopado, endearing ways to refer to cute and pudgy little kids in my mother tongue, Gachi. I was also told by the kids I went to school with, being called things like fatso, fatty, porker. You know the drill. Was I traumatized? Sure. But nothing put the cherry on the trauma Sunday more than buying back-to-school clothes from the husky section. You know, the section for the fat kids. The clothes in the husky section are bigger and uglier, and you can hear the buzz of frustrated parents fat-shaming their kids. It's really awesome. Can you sense the PTSD in my sarcasm? Mattel can. A few years ago, they introduced Ken dolls with different body types, and they called the husky ones broad, because that's so much better. If grade school didn't solidify that I was overweight, high school hammered the nails in the coffin. Remember the Canada Fitness Award program? I did it every year of school. It was a way to set the standards for strength, endurance, and speed, and then evaluate kids to see if they were meeting those standards. 14 million kids participated over the program's 22-year lifespan, and 8 million received a medal. That means 6 million kids were told they weren't fit enough, and they weren't good enough. The medal ceremony was like a public fat-shaming firing squad that clearly celebrated the haves and belittled the have-nots. The geniuses that came up with this program had to discontinue it, because go figure, it was demotivating the very children it intended to help. And that realization? Well, it only took 22 years. But you might be thinking, certainly as you got older, people matured and became less concerned with your weight. I want to say yes, but I'd be lying. In fact, my weight has impeded my professional growth on more than one occasion. See, when I was a kid, my weight meant that I looked and dressed differently. 
It prevented me from being friends with the cool kids, but it didn't prevent me from interacting with them. My favorite memory from high school is my tutoring business. Some of my clients were athletes, and truth be told, the athletes I tutored were amazingly kind and gentle in private, but fat shamers in public. It was odd, but we were teenagers. Nevertheless, being overweight in high school didn't prevent me from participating because letting me play on the tennis team or be in the school play wasn't a decision that other kids made. It was a decision teachers made. And they, by and large, supported inclusion. However, in the professional world, that changed. I had fewer chances than my normal-sized peers to participate in opportunities. But I, like most overweight professionals, have always been reluctant to see this reality. My conversations with overweight professionals reveal two themes. One, they are very reluctant to admit the existence of weight stigma in the workplace. Two, other elements of intersectionality, such as race, sexual orientation, and gender, feel like they do a better job than weight in terms of explaining why someone is left out. When I asked interviewees why they thought weight mattered less, the answers didn't shed much clarity. So I thought it was time to turn to the data and ask, is weight-based discrimination in the workplace a real thing? Here's what I found. It's pretty shocking. The University of Connecticut studied 14,000 people living in Australia, Canada, France, Germany, and the United Kingdom. On average, the research subjects were 53 years old, and 50% of them had university degrees. Researchers found that half of the study participants had experienced some sort of weight stigma, i.e. they were unfairly treated or discriminated against because of body weight, regardless of their age or education. The University of Tennessee followed the careers of almost 13,000 professionals over 20 years and found that 99% of the time, overweight professionals experienced a wage differential that was 2-7% to lower than their counterparts. Is that big? At the 2% mark, over a career, that can equal your kid's university tuition. And at the 7% mark? Well, that's an entire house. In the UK, a study involving 120,000 people, all white and all 37 to 73 years old, found that overweight people suffered socioeconomically versus their normal-sized colleagues. How? Being overweight meant you had a lower chance of obtaining a degree, more chances of working in unskilled professions, a lower chance of working in professional contexts, and a lower annual household income. This was true for both men and women, but overweight women, well, they were worse off. You might be thinking, okay, this is interesting data, but does it really happen? I mean, if overweight professionals themselves are unsure it's happening to them, then maybe it's not happening. Well, let me share one last piece of action research. Researchers wanted to see if the stigma faced by overweight people, 
you know, being perceived as lazy, less competent, and less qualified, actually resulted in them getting fewer professional opportunities. So these UK-based researchers recruited 181 employed people to review six resumes for each of the following four positions. An administrative coordinator, a university professor, a retail salesperson, and a manual laborer. The resumes participants were presented with were balanced in terms of male and female candidates. They were also designed so all candidates equally had the skills, education, and professional experience required to do the job. The physical resumes were also standardized, so they looked the same. For each job position, evaluators received six resumes. Two included a photo of an overweight person. Two included a photo of a normal weight person, and two resumes had no photo at all. The results? Overweight candidates were discriminated against in all job categories, and when the photos were removed, well, this discrimination went away. But you might be thinking, okay, but in the real world, rarely does one person have the providence to hire someone without input from HR or other colleagues. So this kind of discrimination would be checked. But are you right? In today's real world, we certainly make decisions in teams. But has that reality led to strong representation of female or Black executives in management? The answer is clearly no. So why would discriminating against overweight people be any different, given the cross-cultural stigma associated with being larger in size? It's not different. In fact, an article I found on the website Human Resource Director quotes Barry Posner, who served as the dean of the Levy School of Business at Santa Clara University, and who's recognized as one of the most influential HR thinkers in the world, explaining how the heavy executive is judged to be less capable because of assumptions about how weight affects health and stamina, and how we have real stereotypes about being fat. He added that he can't name a single overweight Fortune 500 CEO. In fact, Dr. Posner is not wrong. Being highly critical of fat people is still today very much an acceptable social prejudice. But interestingly, the prejudice against overweight professionals is not well hidden. It's in the open and often deemed very reasonable. In fact, I found a LinkedIn post by Mr. John Picknick from the Eaton Company, where he states, losing weight, if you are overweight, will make you more successful. Mr. Picknick openly and unabashedly counsels his readers, and I quote, poor health from being overweight can unfavorably affect your energy level while you work. And he argues that being overweight can... I quote, negatively influence your much-needed business relationships with bosses, colleagues, customers, and partners. He also suggests that if you eat right, you will lose more weight than only through exercise, and explains that eating right is not that difficult, since, and I quote, there is no physical exertion required for eating right. I would argue that it is much easier than exercise, end quote. Mr. Picknick goes on to argue that finding the right diet is critical and advises overweight readers that you should think about losing weight as something that should be 
and I quote, at the forefront of what you need to be successful. Okay, but let's think for a moment. What if Mr. Picnic were speaking about skin lightening cream? He's not, but what if he were? Would our reaction be the same? You might be surprised to learn that the skin lightening cream business is a $20 billion business, and the weight loss business is a $200 billion business. But both are growing at an annual rate of 7%. If Mr. Picnic were speaking about any other form of discrimination outside of weight, such as race or gender, would LinkedIn allow this post to stand? The answer is likely no. And before you say, well, you can't change your gender or race, but you can change your weight. Can you? Research in 2022 shows that 1% of obese people in the U.S. ever achieve a normal weight, despite decades of effort. And that is generous. When you dig into the research, you learn that men with a BMI over 40 had a 1 in a 1,290 chance of becoming a healthy weight. In comparison, Women in that category had a 1 in 677 chance. So that's more like a 0.05% chance that an overweight person will ever achieve a normal weight. In fact, doctors are beginning to realize that weight loss is much more than calories in, calories burned. Weight loss is being classified as a chronic disease that is genetic and neurological. It seems increasingly likely that the brain of an obese person works differently. For example, the part that tells us when it's time to refuel and when it's time to stop eating seems to work differently in overweight people, making weight loss very difficult. It's called the hypothalamus homeostatic system. The brain of an obese person may also drive them to want food more and to feel more comfort when eating food. That part of the brain is called the mesolimbic reward system. As a man of color, if someone asked me to try to be lighter skinned, I'd laugh. Because how am I supposed to decrease the melatonin in my skin? And why do I want to? In fact, the medical profession is beginning to tell us something very similar. Being overweight may not be a choice. But that level of insight has not made it to the workplace where overweight professionals continue to be plagued with biases of being lazy, not being able to work as hard, and not being presentable enough. So let me tell you about Art. Art graduated from a mid-tier MBA program in Canada. He had a background in sales and applied for a position at a major sales training company. After his application is reviewed, he gets a call from the CEO. Art was very excited. But the conversation didn't go as Art was expecting. Let me quote from my interview with Art. I get a call, and the first thing he says is, why in the world would I hire you? I was a little taken aback, so I asked, I'm not sure I understand the question. So he explains, we hire the best and brightest from top schools. You went to a mid-tier school at best. Art explains to me, I was shocked, and thank God I'm relatively quick on my feet. So I respond, are you looking for a student or a professional? I am a talented salesperson. 
I have a five-year track record of success. I have very strong communication skills, and I'm good at deconstructing complexity for clients. I would make a great trainer. But if where I went to school matters more than that, then you shouldn't interview me. For a moment, the CEO didn't say anything. I thought he hung up. And then I hear, come in tomorrow for an interview. I'll see you at 10 a.m. Ark goes on to explain. Arif, I was beside myself. I was so excited. The next morning rolls around. I get into the interview and it goes amazingly well. So well that the CEO introduces me to all the VPs. He then invites me back to his office and says, I have one more thing I need you to do. And then the job is yours. I'm giving you the name of a potential client. I want you to prepare a one-page report on how sales training may help this potential client. I was like, done. I'll have it to you tomorrow. And then he says, oh, and there is one more thing. This job requires a lot of travel. That's not a problem, I said. And you need to be highly presentable. So we would insist that in your first year, you commit to losing 30 or 40 pounds. Art tells me, Arif, I nodded. I didn't know what to say. I've been trying to lose weight since I was 10, but I wasn't sure how to feel about this when it was coming from my future boss. Art went home, knocked out the assignment, and sent it to his new boss. But in the email, he wrote, The request to lose weight was not only inappropriate, but highly discriminatory, and he was withdrawing his application. The CEO wrote back, telling Art, clearly, he was not a good fit if he couldn't take feedback. And then he added, Looks like you have too big of a chip on your shoulder to even recognize good advice. But see, Art's experience is not novel. You know, one that underestimates people who are overweight. When I worked as the Dean of Arts and Sciences at the University of Central Asia, my job was to open the academic side of the house. This meant designing programs, building partnerships with institutions like the University of British Columbia, the University of Toronto, the University of Victoria, the University of Technology Sydney, the Higher School of Economics in Russia, and even places like Berkeley and Cambridge. It meant spending hundreds of hours with Gensler in the UK, one of the largest architectural firms in the world, providing input on buildings and classroom designs. It meant traveling in and out of Central Asia every two to three weeks for five years. I was super elite on every airline I flew. And the whole job meant crazy hours, 9.30 a.m. to 11.30 p.m., Monday to Friday, with Saturday starting at 11 a.m. and ending at 6 p.m., and Sundays starting at noon and ending at 4. Every week for almost five years. And that's the God's honest truth. And I was fat throughout. Lazy? Unable to work hard? No, not at all. But ask the 30-year-olds on my staff, who struggled to keep up the pace. But I'd be lying if I said, despite this, that I didn't experience the stereotype. Not from most, but certainly from a few. So what does this mean for organizations? 
What can they do to limit the stigma around being overweight? And what can they do to ensure their hiring and promotion practices are not underpinned by this stigma? Four things. One, leaders need to promote the use of what I call safety cones. These are spaces where people can feel safe to ask questions, share data, learn about different topics related to diversity, and openly discuss prickly topics without the fear of reproach. Topics like, although 30% of Canadians are overweight, why is it that we have no overweight people in any senior positions in the company? Two, leaders need to embrace diversity reviews. Go back to your last five to 10 hires for key positions in your company and ask yourself and those involved that among those interviewed, how many were overweight and did they get a fair chance at getting the job? See what you learn. Three, leaders need to embrace a learning stance. They can't deal with diversity, equity, and inclusion issues if they don't understand the state of affairs within their organizations. What biases exist? Once you have a sense of the landscape, you can begin to implement education, learning, and bias training. But a panacea approach to diversity, one that institutes generic, one-size-fits-all implicit bias training, is a mistake, and it doesn't work. You might be surprised that this kind of training has been around in organizations since the 1960s. Do you think it's working? Four, finally, write job descriptions so people of all shapes and sizes feel welcome to apply. I leave you with two lasting thoughts. First, weight stigma is insidious. Throughout this podcast, I called myself fat a number of times, overweight. And as I did that, something has been happening in my head. Part of my brain is telling me to reassure you that I'm not that overweight. But the other part is saying, why do you need to do that? That's, and I don't want to curse, so I'll say... That's very fudged up. The second thought I leave you with is that despite the overwhelming data around weight discrimination, and despite the reality that so many working professionals have experienced its existence, weight discrimination is legal in 49 states, and in Canada, weight and body size are not included as protected grounds. So employees have almost no recourse against this type of discrimination. It's high time. This discrimination is real, and we need to change our organizations to protect people from being discriminated against. And that change, well, it can only be led by those at the top of your organization, who, interestingly, are rarely overweight. you'll join me again in a few weeks by subscribing to the podcast. And I especially hope that today, the time spent listening to this podcast made you feel that this was a voice worth listening to. If you would like more information about my work in diversity and strategy, please visit my website at www.strat-ology.com. 
That's S-T-R-A-T dash O-L-O-G-Y dot com. The music in this podcast is from the Toronto Tabla Ensemble. To find out more, visit torontotabla.com. That's the word Toronto and the word tabla, T-A-B-L-A dot com. Thank you.